Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. All right, guys, like whether, honestly, you need stress relief, sleep support, some recovery, mood boosters, or incredible skincare, like all the good things in life. Like, honestly, that is the, I can't say trifecta because that's more than three things, but you get my gist. Well, we've got Prima to make that magic happen. They're doctor-formulated, clinically validated, high-performance CBD products for the skin, body, and mind in so many forms, from CBD supplements, which is like my speed, to bath bombs, which is like Maddie's speed, body lotion and skincare, Prima is fighting against all the stressors on our minds, bodies, communities, and the environment. We are super excited to share that this week, Prima has announced and is celebrating, so this is definitely worth celebrating, guys, the launch of Sephora's new sustainability standards. So they are one of 10 brands that meet the rigorous clean standards that Sephora has put out. So they have a few things that make them meet the standards. Let's just like run through them real quick. I think you guys are going to be a fan. And one of those things is sustainable sourcing. So they meticulously source their ingredients with sustainable farming practices. So it's huge for them. They also have a climate commitment, which means they're carbon neutral and all carbon emissions from making the product are offset here for that. So they have 100% clean ingredients with very strict safety standards. So you are getting the best of the best. They also use responsible packaging. So Plus for every product sold, Prima removes twice as much plastic waste from the environment. We love to see it. And last but certainly not least, there is an environmental giving aspect. So Prima gives 1% annually to nonprofit organizations and is also a certified B Corp. So lots of good things. And those are actually fully all of the reasons why we even wanted to partner with Prima and bring them to you all. Along with, of course, like how incredible their products are, which we know and we have been raving about for months now. But we do also want to give a shout out to Prima and the current advocacy that they're doing to declassify CBD as shaft content. So recently, CBD has just been unjustly lumped into what is known as shaft content which is designated as content pertaining to sex, hate, alcohol, firearms, and tobacco. This means companies are no longer allowed to use text messaging to promote their CBD products, despite CBD being a full wellness aid with no intoxicating effects. CBD is effectively being classified in the same category as hate speech, alcohol, and guns. And so in an effort to stop censoring CBD, A coalition of CBD brands, advocates, and champions, including Prima, are on a mission to unlock the industry together and hashtag free CBD. So join us by signing and sharing the petition today. We put it in the description for this episode. But also, of course, you guys, lucky for us, you can enjoy the joy and relief of CBD because Prima is offering all of you an exclusive limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co and feel better every day and sign the petition. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> 
well. Welcome back to Girl on the Go the podcast. Happy Wednesday, Samantha. How are you? Madison. <laughs> Is your hangover cured? You know what? I'm unsure. I, <laughs> I really still feel a little bit concerned. Concerned. But, you know, I, I would like to thank Chipotle for that. Yes. Mm. Yes. A great uh, shout yeah. out to their life-saving ingredients and endless amounts of mental guac support. Because, sure, sure. you know, I, I don't know where I would be without them. Is this classified as a three-day hangover? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, if we're counting the Thursday... See, this is where it gets confusing. Because then it's like I was still hungover from Thursday. So then... Oh, like it's a full six, five, six then, day? Because then five it, day? it intersected with another hangover. Where does that... What's the math? I think they, I think they all add up, and it's a cumulative... Five. I'll give you five. I think it's six, but I'm gonna give you five just for your sanity. Thank you. Hangover. Thank you. Honestly, what a what a take what a turn for me. Like Fourth of July, several <laughs> days of drinking a row. Wasn't hungover once. Like, was I tired by the end? Like an old lady. Yes, but like, was of I course. hungover? No. By some miracle, I was good to go. And these two random events intersecting in their hangoverness. It threw me. Well, I already um, diagnosed it. You're just, you weren't hydrated enough, and it just came and bit you in the ass. You're just really July full of benders really came back to fully bite you, I think. I, yeah, I mean, Will I think that you're... Would be an accurate As portrayal? I look at my empty <laughs> water bottle, I would probably say yes. you. Did you get Pedialyte, like I told you to? They didn't have any. I tried. Well, I tried. I went in there, full steam. I Then I tried to find Propel. Did they have any? No. So did I end up with another yellow Gatorade? Also, yes. Okay. Which is fine, but I have to say, while we're analyzing this for a hot second, that not cold is vile. And I just need to talk to the scientists behind Propel. Gatorade. Well, Propel... I've never liked Propel. Propel is like... It's okay. This is gonna sound so weird. It mm-hmm. tastes less like cakey. <laughs> I'm gonna just stop this conversation now before everyone turns this podcast off. Okay, so let's just move on and not get into the intricacies of <laughs> our preferred sports drink. But instead, let's definitely introduce our guest because, guys. Newsflash, um, surprise, we have another amazing guest. Like, what, what am I supposed to say? We do. And she is from Maddie's Neck of the Woods, a.k.a. California. Mixing mm-hmm. it up. Leaving New York. Leaving the Apple. You know, having a moment. And I'm she- proud of you for branching out with your guest out- outreach, by the way. <laughs> I was like, wow, she just got a California guest? Who is this girl? I know. I know. <laughs> She's branching out. She's opening her mind. It's really, it's something else. And we'll just see if we can get her to take a trip out here. We'll just see when that happens. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'll figure it out. We will. We will. Okay. Well, let's stop with the nonsense <laughs> and let's introduce our guest now. Are you ready? So our lovely guest is running for California State Assembly. Endorsed by Project Super Bloom. Shout out. Our friend Fatima joined us to tell us all about her candidacy, why she's running in District 64 against another Democrat. 
there is some tea mm -hmm. to that, of course. So without further ado, here is the Dima. So I am, I think of myself first as an educator. So I, you know, worked as a teacher in Watts. I uh, founded a robotics team there, so I'm also a mentor. I'm also a mom to a son with autism. So I always, that's important to share because, you know, a lot of moms don't feel represented in politics sometimes. And I'm also, you know, an immigrant, a community organizer as well. I try to, you know, even just while, when I was a teacher, I try to always stay engaged in local community issues. And I'm, you know, a candidate for state assembly, District 64. I know we're going to talk about districts in a bit. So we'll jump into how that number comes to be. But I am a candidate for state assembly, District 64 as well. A couple other things I do is I'm a state uh, delegate. I'm on the board of the Progressive Caucus of the Democratic Party as well. So those are my informal and formal titles. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you mentioned obviously running for state assembly in California. Why state assembly? Can you kind of tell us the story of really what got you to run for this position? Yeah, I want to just say I never thought I would run for office. You know, they have all these political shows where the, this child is groomed and has his goal and maybe some people actually go through that but I, I definitely didn't um I was I was uh, really inspired I think like many of us you know by the Bernie Sanders movement to be honest and that kind of coincided with me working in Watts and I just saw a lot of the ways government wasn't working for people mm -hmm. just to put it simply and I saw it as really un unjust because you know we are in the richest state and especially LA being you know you know I mean there's a lot of issues with homelessness and so many issues. But, you know, we should, in America, in our state especially, we're like a mini country, we should not have schools that are falling apart and we should not have students that don't have access to certain things and, you know, parents that are working job, two, two or three jobs, immigrants that are afraid of, you know, kind of their status in this in the state. And so saw so a lot of those things happening, also just like lack of access to clean water, you know, in their, in their communities. And that kind of expanded into my organizing even outside of the classroom. And the reason I decided to run for assembly is I eventually was a commission, a commissioner, appointed a commissioner of my uh, current opponent right now and just wasn't happy with his voting record. You know, it wasn't what I saw. I was fighting for what my other constituents were fighting for. And, you know, call me crazy, but I believe a representative should represent the wishes of the people. And I just didn't see that happening. And so I wanted to make sure that I could regain that trust. So I built a campaign around making sure residents' voices felt heard, you know, making sure that, that we could actually have a representative that is what the activists have been fighting for, what just residents, parents, you know, and, and, and the youth and everyone else have been fighting for. And that, that was the reason I wanted to run. I wanted to be that voice. Yeah. Wait, do you mind giving a background too on like your district, where it is, demographics, yeah. things like that, and also like the incumbent in office and like who they are and what they're about? Yeah, sure. So my district is one of the most working class districts in California. So zooming in into L.A. County now, it's more in like South L.A., South Central L.A. So some of the you know notable communities in it are Watts, Compton, Carson, uh, Wilmington. Um, it has like the fifth lowest kind of income bracket of, you know, so when you look at districts, you look at, well, what's the median income? And that means like, you know, you can kind of look at that and see are they really be able to afford a house or what sorts of schools will they have, right? So my district is kind of on the lower end of that. So that means the schools aren't very high quality. It means, you know, housing prices are really high compared to what the residents make. And so my district as a whole has even a quarter of the state's refineries. 
So you can imagine the pollution level. It has, you know, clean, unclean water issues all over the district, just like lead, arsenic, toxicity issues. What else can I say? So that is kind of overarching my district. And I know police brutality was a huge part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, well, you know, since, since I feel like since the origin of our country, but more so gotten the public eye strongly, you know, the past couple of years, especially, you know, we've had, you know, a lot of shootings of young black and brown men and women in my district. And so, you know, just the issue of public safety and what that looks like and, you know, just reimagining it has been definitely on the residents' minds and making sure we actually have public safety that protects the public, not that it's actually hurting the public yeah. in a lot of cases, right? And so my opponent is has been in the seat for a little while, like about seven, eight years. He, you know, he is takes the most in corporate money. What that means is that he basically has been taking from the entities that have been hurting my district. So like, developers, oil refineries, corporations, police unions and associations, and things like that. And that's why, as I mentioned, his voting record is not reflective, right, of the people. It's reflective more of his, his corporate donors. And yeah, so that's kind of my point in my nutshell, particularly his environmental record is really bad. You know, he has some criminal justice votes in the past that aren't good. And in my mind, too, I think what differentiates like what I'm trying to build, what I've been trying to build, and I feel like what he hasn't been build, being able to build is that like we have all these issues in California where like the gap between the rich and poor is just like growing, the housing crisis is getting worse. And I'm just frankly frustrated, not just at my opponent, but like at a lot of our legislators, because what a lot of folks might not know is we always hear about, you know, the president and we hear about the Supreme Court, but, you know, over 95% of education funding, for example, is from the state level, we can actually have real housing solutions at the state level, environmental um, solutions. And that's not being done. And even though we've had Democrats up there, they've like either chosen not to vote on these issues or just in also haven't just come forth with like, you know, transformative legislation. And to me, that takes work. But like, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm, a, I'm an academic and I'm a, like, I'm a nerd, like I'm a science nerd. You know, that's what I do. Like I love, I was just today talking to a group of, of like researchers, the graduate students doing research in environmental toxicity. Like that's the kind of thing I love. And so I think that sort of transformative work that it takes to really change the status of a state, of a community, I don't see that being done on the scale it has to be done. And so. Yeah. Wait, yeah. is he a Democrat? Yeah, he's a Democrat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we had, you know, Project Superloom, obviously, and Eric and you know, he, oh, they're so great. I love that. Yeah, them. <laughs> he came on the show and yeah. like gave, had, we had such a great episode with him just talking about California state legislature and how they're all phony Democrats who really just like pose yep. as Democrats to take corporate money. Definitely. I actually, so I have a question. This wasn't mm -hmm. on here. So yeah. this is like taking us for a loop, but <laughs> we were recently talking with our friend Aaron, who was a teacher in North Carolina a few years back and he kind of illuminated where the funding for education came from in North Carolina and he explained essentially that it was based off of property taxes so if you live for example in a district where the property tax is really high because the real estate was higher therefore you would have access to a better education system so yeah I'm curious if that's also the case in California or Okay, it is interesting. Yeah, okay. it is the case in California, and I that is what the issue is, right? So if you think of like places like my district, where property taxes aren't high, right? You're, the schools aren't going to have a, be as high quality, and and that's why you know concerns about you know redlining are so intersectional, and housing prices are so intersectional when it comes to education. So if you're basically able to have the privilege of 
renting or buying a house in a really nice neighborhood, you're going to have access to good public schools. If you're not, you're just not. And and that is why you know we sh- we need to get away from that sort of that sort of system. And one thing with state funding uh, for education is that over 95% of funding is actually at the state level. So as a teacher, that's why I was so passionate about state legislature, not something like Congress or even maybe city, because I really want, think that education should be the great equalizer. I saw when I you know created my robotics team how it inspired so many more students to go to college um, and who, who's, who are first generation students and not just for the sake of going to college, but because they were actually inspired and they had you know, a program that inspired them. And so I want that to be there for every kid, you know, and my son's also autistic. So that's also part of my fight for education. I had to fight for him in in the public school system to get the rights that he deserved, the aid that he deserved. Right now, our public school system isn't well-funded and it's it's affecting especially the most marginalized kids, the special needs kids, you know, low-income kids. And we need to make sure that we get adequate funding no matter where a family lives, so. Totally. mm -hmm. Yeah. And then remind everyone too, like, when is your race? When are people voting? Give us the logistics there. Yeah, of course. So my my primary is June 7th, 2022. You know, so that is, yeah, just under like a year from now. And part of the reason I'm, I'm starting, you know, so early is because I'm a corporate free candidate. So Eric probably talked a lot about yeah. how difficult it is to run as a corporate free candidate. He's in fact, the financial director for Project Superloom. He's always checking in on me and I'm like this young kid is so smart he's like he no calls. yeah he's <laughs> like, amazing I'm like he's checking in on, on me and he's like how's your fundraising going and I'm yeah. like okay Aww, we love him <laughs> yeah I do too yeah speaking of Eric Eric just slacked me right now <laughs> he knows he's always on me yeah. he's like remember to call this donor <laughs> <laughs> speaking of him it's like he knows okay he's on it <laughs> I love it I love on it, it. yes so yeah, part of the reason I'm running early is because of fundraising. It's so hard. I mean, I want, you know, people watching this, girls watching this to know something. It's harder for a women woman candidate actually running to raise money, which is so sad because it's based in sexism. It's because our society sees men, especially white men, more as leaders than they do women, and let alone women of color and me wearing this hijab. Like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people look at me they're like, oh, she must be submissive. She must be, you know, uh, maybe she has an accent or maybe she doesn't speak English well. And so anyway, so, you know, especially me as a candidate, I work really hard to raise money and to also start knocking on doors early so we can beat that corporate money and win. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. I mean, so important. We need more of you, more candidates like you, more campaigns like that. Definitely. It'll take all, a lot of us getting elected, a lot of good candidates getting elected to change things. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And that is literally the perfect segue into our I have, I have a stupid question segment because we're going to talk about a few different elements here that connect to sort of this no corporate, you know, fundraising segment versus not. So to start, what is a no fossil fuel money pledge? Like, what does that yes. mean? Like I could, I could take some guesses, but <laughs> I want to hand it to you. I will say, just to say for anyone hearing out there, there are no stupid questions <laughs> ever. I say as a teacher all the time. So I want everyone to know that every question is a great question because yes. someone else probably has it too. Yeah. So the no fossil fuel money pledge basically means I don't take contributions from, you know, fossil fuel companies to put it simply. So like oil, gas, energy companies, there is like an amount like, you know, over 200, but I just don't take any of it. So, you know, but oh, yeah. yeah, so that is what that means. It means that I'm not indebted to them, especially in my district. You know, when the refineries are polluting a lot of the community and, yeah. and I feel like, you know, need to be held accountable. I don't want to be 
taking money from them. I want to be accountable to the people and their health first. Totally. Love mm-hmm. that. Okay. And then what is the Homes Guarantee Pledge? Yeah. So the Homes Guarantee Pledge is similar except with like real estate and with developers. So it means that I won't take money from any you know major property manager or developer. You know, a lot of these sorts of um, corporations have been hurting people, yeah. right, in a sense. And so it's it's the same kind of same kind of reason, right? I want to be accountable to truly affordable housing and really good ho- housing solutions, rather than being in the pockets of developers. And so I don't take any sort of of that money. But you know, for both of the all these pledges, what that also includes for me is I don't take like let's say they're an executive high up. I I don't take their money as well because they have enough influence, right? It's good to know that. You know, real estate's actually the number one contributor to candidates yeah. above oil and above police, the state legislature. And then you wonder, like, a housing crisis is really bad. Yeah. Well, it's because real house, really good housing solutions don't pass. Real rent control and things like that cannot pass are not have not passed the state legislature. And it's no surprise because real estate is a contributor. It's, it's really, you know, they're really putting money in these politicians' pockets yeah. to make sure that you know, developers and property managers are prioritized over, you know, renters and regular people. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so crazy. Like, just Mm -hmm. every issue, it comes back to money of why things aren't getting done, even housing. And I was actually going to ask that, too. I mean, when people are like, oh, well, there's a housing shortage in California. Like, why wouldn't, why would developers be bad? You need more housing. Can you kind of explain that of, like, why kind of these big corporate developers are actually just, I guess, bad for solving the uh, housing crisis, yeah, ultimately? Yeah, that's a really great question, actually, because you would you would think, like, oh, we need a developer, we need property managers, because we need more housing. So that's a great question. And the reason for that is because there's different types of developers, there's different types of, you know, landlords, even, and property managers and things like that. A lot of the developers right now in California that are given license to build you know, like this free range license are like luxury developers or like highly for profit developers. And so the types of housing they're building are not for like what community members could afford their housing that leads to displacement. You know, there's this housing called mixed income housing that is questionable because, you know, like it'll have like certain affordable developments, but it'll have like higher income too. And it's like, well, in my mind, like, especially if there's a community that is has been historically seeing displacement and gentrification like there should be no type of housing like that even happening right it should be housing only one if there's an, a need for housing first of all right and then you look at and see what the community's income is and then you build a housing you don't right. just bring economic development there or new housing unless the community really calls for it right mm-hmm. and it should be on the community's terms of you know what they can afford right and so that's why we hear about you know nonprofit developers or yeah. we hear about you know, public housing, right, and we, or, or first step housing and things like that, that's different from like something a for-profit developer might might inve- yeah. might build or something like that. So it's just, it has to do with the profit incentive and, you know, what's kind of publicly funded, you know, in terms of like public housing is good versus like what's privately funded, right, yeah. in terms of these corporations. So when things are privately funded, there's always going to be a profit motive. And so we're not saying we don't want those developers. What, what I want to do is I want to create a system where we just hold them accountable, right? We say, hey, no, you cannot build here or, you know, you need to make sure you follow all these guidelines and the rent has to, you know, be capped at this much or something like that, like to be able to build. And right now that's simply not happening. There's like this market level housing, but right, like market yeah. level housing is not really affordable because like the market right now is really high, like right. expensive in California. So like we actually shouldn't base like housing on 
market level, it should be based on what the community is making at the moment, right? Like That's a good point. The, yeah, the poorest member of the community in my mind should be able to afford to buy a home, not just mm -hmm. rent it. Like that's the situation. You know, I think housing should be a human right and it shouldn't be something that, oh man, now I can buy a house. Like yeah. there are folks that have graduated college that are in jobs, like that still can't afford a home in California. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a never ending crisis. Whenever I talk to my dad about California, so my dad was out there and this was like the seventies, like literally, I mean, this dude's not young. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> considered very much like, am I going to stay in California and explore XYZ job as an architect? Or am I going to go back to the East coast? Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. East coast isn't cheap either. Mm -hmm. Like it's an arm and a leg to do anything, but Literally, the reaction was you could be with two degrees and several years of job experience still unable to even remotely think about buying a home. Mm -hmm. And I was literally like, I'm going to have to be 65 before this is ever even a thought Crazy. on yeah. what the what everything sort of balanced out to be and led to the decision of obviously coming back to the East Coast. But just the fact that that then how many years ago, how many literal decades ago was an issue and now we're still dealing with it now. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And you know, a lot of this changed in government after like the, the late seventies and eighties, corporations weren't always these huge lobbyists, you know, I'm in government and that changed. And we drastically saw, you know, like what they in the fifties, like after world war two, like, like our country was like thriving. And it was like after, you know, after those tax breaks, right, for really wealthy people and after the influence of, you know, corporations really in um, these spaces where policy and decisions were being made, we, we drastically saw income inequality rising mm -hmm. and, you know, and we have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the entire industrialized nation. America does. We have more children in poverty than any other industrialized country. And that's crazy as a richest country in the world. So, yeah, yeah it's well, that's why the hope is that we have, you know, not just me, but there's there's good candidates some in office already there's other good candidates running and i think there's activism happening on the streets we need mm -hmm. that too right we need folks like you know just acting on the streets holding our elected officials accountable the good the ones that we think are good we don't want them to get corrupted and even the ones that are bad we, like, we need all that activism to just make sure the people's work is being done so i would just encourage anyone watching to like you know f continue to participate in that because it works just like what happened with sunrise sunrise la yeah. I don't know if y'all heard, right, but they were able to get Feinstein to, to sign on, you know, to this bill, the Civilian Climate Corps. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, the life lesson here is clearly look for those grassroots candidates. That's literally the solution to most of our problems is to get in candidates who aren't indebted to corporations. Sure. But to even continue that conversation, can you answer our last stupid question, which is what is the no cop money pledge? Yeah, so basically that means that I don't take money from, you know, police unions, police associations, someone like like sheriffs, anything, anyone like that. And why? And, like and what? why, yes. Yeah. yeah, so the reason I don't take money from them is because, you know, police associations and unions are not like most other unions. They, they protect, if you think about it, unions supposed to protect workers, right? Mm -hmm. But the police union association, like, is protecting people with a gun, right which is like super unique but also it means that if that police officer you know is is killing a civilian there's really no accountability in the current structure of the police union to have like a just and you know just investigation which is why we don't see a lot of police officers getting convicted mm -hmm. 
and just even thoroughly investigated and even evidence not being transparent, right? So that's that's part of the reason I don't take money from these entities because, you know, they're just frankly not benefiting my community, my district, my son, literally. Like, you know, I have a, I have a seven-year-old son and we live 10 minutes from where Andres Gardado was shot, you know, I'm in Compton. And so that, particularly that shooting was particularly very real for me. I just think, well, wow, if my son was just walking there when he was a teenager, yeah. you know, like working, like he could have been shot. That could have been him. And so that's the reason I don't take money from unions and associations, police unions and associations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on forward to this topic of redistricting and specifically in California. And so can you just first highlight the current status of redistricting in California? Yeah, of course. And before I say this, I just want to say for all the viewers to like, you know, I had to Google some of these answers, too. And that's okay. You know, I'm a teacher and I always tell my students, you know, I don't have the answer to every question, but I can find it out for you. So know that if I can do it, you can, too. Yeah. So I just wanted to share that. We stand. Uh, Yes, yes. Keep it very real. Okay, so the current status of redistricting in California is that it should be completed sometime in January. And, you know, it was supposed to be completed, I believe, in August. And the redistricting commission had to, like, lobby the state Supreme Court to give more time just because they didn't have all the census data. They wanted to make sure, like, you know, the public was involved. And that's one reason I'm grateful to live in California. Thankfully, I'll talk about more about why the redistricting commission is so so gracious and, 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 you know, maybe a little kinder than maybe our legislative spaces, and it's just made up of regular people and not politicians. So, <laughs> so yeah, I like the fact that they've slowed down because they want to make sure they do it right and they have public input. So to answer your question directly, it should be done, you know, around January. And right now they're in the phase of, of activation. So what that means is they're really trying to get public input on like, they're going to communities and saying like, how would you like, you know, the lines to be drawn and things like that. So that's the phase they're in right now. Gotcha. I feel like it was just yesterday when I was filling out the census and pushing people to fill it out. So this is whew, time warp. Yeah. But I'm glad this is finally, you know, coming to fruition, which begs the question, how often does this happen? Yeah, so it happens every ten years, which is like you mentioned the census. You know, like after the census we have redistricting happens so every ten years. Mm-hmm. And who's in charge of the redistricting, the redrawing? How does that process work? Yeah, so it's it's 14 people in California. I hope I got that. Yes, it is 14 people. I was like, was I one off or one more? And it's one of those numbers. You're like, it's 14. 14 okay. is an awkward so, yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> it is an awkward number. Yeah, so it is 14 people. And, you know, from what I read, it's made up of an equal amount of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, uh, which, is, which is great. And they're not politicians or they're not candidates. So they're like, you know, regular people, you know, who had to apply to be on this commission. The state selected them. But like I said, they're not, you know, a candidate, a politician, meant, meant to be as independent thinking as possible. And even then, they're not supposed to run within office for a few years. So I think mm-hmm. California is trying to do a, a better job of, a good job of trying to make it as unbiased as possible. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, especially because I feel like that could be such a problem and so easily swayed mm-hmm. in a particularly different way. Yeah. Is there a way that they select these people? Is it like a lottery? Like, I feel like that'd be like, honestly, I feel like I'd have like a fun time doing that. <laughs> Mostly because first with the census, like I love filling out a survey. So start there. Like maybe, is this my next career move? <laughs> like I, should I be <laughs> on a redistricting? I mean, are you a good maybe? drawer? <laughs> good drawer. <laughs> I can draw a really good tree. There we guys. go. She's just going to be and- splitting up the state in trees. 
Oh my goodness. Uh, so that would not be good for representation. That's like way too many people. <laughs> there we go. It would be bizarre. I mean, I can draw good hearts as well, but that's really, is, that's not great either. That would so, be cute. Yeah. I'm gonna... All your districts will be heart-shaped. That would be really cute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, lots of love in California. But how do these people get there? Yeah, so they have to apply to be on the redistricting commission and the state. I, I want to say, I don't want to get the state um, entity wrong, but I think it's like the board of auditors or something that, I, I, but I might be wrong. That it's somewhere in the state who selects it, but it's not a lottery. Like they actually look through the applications and figure out, you know, they try to be like equal and, and I was going to say fair and balanced, but isn't that like <laughs> That's Fox News motto. <laughs> You're like, whoop, never oh mind. God, I'm, like, I'm not going to use back. the word fair and balanced. Okay, Rewind. Balance. Okay. Yeah. Get the white out. All right. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, but they try to, you know, be uh, as just as possible, you know, and, and, and I think the kind of redistricting commission is as, as just as it could probably be. So, yeah. So they're selected from and from the applications by the state. Okay. And then mm-hmm. what can, I guess, voters expect to see and then in 2022 with new districts? Like, what would that even look like even as a constituent, as a voter? What can yeah. we expect? So your district numbers may change. Like, so when we talk about redistricting, like, by the way, it, it means that they're going to re- redraw the, like, assembly district lines, congressional district lines. And also there's this thing called Board of Equalization. And those are district. different? Yeah, they're different. Okay. Yeah, they're different. So, for example, I could be in like you know a certain number of a certain number assembly district and congressional district number, and then like my friend could be in the same assembly district but like a different congressional district. Interesting. Yeah, so they're different sizes, and so for that reason, you know, if you can picture it, like you know, assembly districts are a bit smaller, right? So, uh, congressional districts are a bit bigger. So, like some, you know, so there is some overlaps. So their numbers might change. So like right now I'm in District 64, right? So like your your number, my district number could change, my congressional district number could change. And why that's important is, you know, let's say you had a representative, right, for a district, like it might be a different representative, mm. and you need to hold them accountable now, right. not this person, right? And so it's good to know that just totally. for advocacy and just who you're voting for, what's on your ballot. And so, yeah, that's all online too. The average person probably doesn't know, and like that's that's okay because I think like the process like right now like we're trying to make the process more democratic but it's some voters feel disenfranchised and so they're not like motivated to look up but yeah. it's good to you know look it up but it's okay like not knowing but there are ways you can like look it up yeah and, definitely and, and mm-hmm. definitely look it up because we definitely want everyone yeah. to be aware and interacting with their state government especially knowing how crucial it is and kind of what really these legislatures i mean legislators have been getting yeah. away with <laughs> and take this money and then kind of pose as democrats make false promises and like a lot of people since they're not as engaged with state politics and don't know who the representative are aren't able to really know that and then obviously hold that person accountable so right yeah go you know search for your state representatives are you just plug in your address they'll tell you you know if you're really in mm-hmm. interested check their track record all the things but yes. Awesome. Okay. So for next steps on this, of course, we want to sort of wrap our conversation and of course, hand the mic back over to you. Give us the scoop on like where our listeners can find you, where, you know, they can help support your campaign. Give us the four in one. Yeah. So I, my website, let me start with that. That has like all the information on it. So my website is Fatima for assembly.com. So it's F-A-T-I-M-A-F-O-R assembly.com. 
And there you can, you know, donate. And I want to encourage folks like, because, oh, and if you're under 18, though, just get your parents to donate because you can't donate. <laughs> so, because I've had that. I actually had like these really excited news on my campaign donate. I'm like, oh, no, you can't do that. I love that you want to support. But yeah. yeah, but you can get, you know, family members to donate if you're younger. But you can donate. We have opportunities to volunteer. Like you can sign up. Even if you're a distant, actually far, there's phone banking. Yeah. There's different things you can do with helping, you know, draw volunteers to our canvases. You can do that from home, right? If you are close to LA or in LA County, we are starting canvassing this Sunday at 1 p.m. So, you know, August 1st. And we're going to be having canvassing every weekend day. So, you know, if you're in summer and you want to just help on the weekends, we would love that. We want to knock on a lot of doors. That's the best way to really win. And so, yeah, so you can join us for canvassing. And again, all those sign-up opportunities are on the website. Just go to my website for everything. It's all there. <laughs> yes. So We love it. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing, informative, all the good things. And we can't wait to see what happens with your campaign. We're going to keep an eye on it. But good luck. And thank you again for, for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. I, that was It was so much fun. And I think, especially as a teacher, it's great. I love that you're doing this for, you know, everyone, but also particularly young people. So I think this is really, really positive that, you know, you're exposing them to government in this format. Thank you so much. Thank that means you. a lot. Well, moving on to top stories of the week, I think we're going to change the name of this podcast to Infrastructure explained because I don't think we've stopped talking about it in any episode for months now. But we have more infrastructure updates for you guys on the infrastructure bill we've been talking about because Monday we mentioned last week was going to be like the big vote and big moment to see kind of where the future of this bill lies. And so senators actually ran into new problems on Monday as they raced to, you know, seal a bipartisan infrastructure deal with pressure mounting on all sides to show progress on President Joe Biden's very top priority. So heading into this make or break week, there have been some serious roadblocks that have remained and disputes have surfaced over how much money should go to public transit and water projects and other disagreements over spending and wage requirements for highways, broadband, other areas remain unresolved. So they're also wondering whether to take unspent COVID-19 relief money to help pay for the infrastructure. So there's just still a lot up in the air that classic, no one in the Senate can agree on, but what's new? So President Biden was asked about the outlook and told reporters at the White House he remained optimistic about reaching a compromise. Um, And then Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that Biden himself worked the phones all weekend and that the administration was encouraged by the progress. But Saki acknowledged that time is not endless as the White House works with the Senate to finish the package. This week is really crucial after more than a month long slog of negotiations since Biden and the bipartisan group first celebrated the contours of the nearly $1 trillion bipartisan agreement in June. So you guys, I don't have an answer for you (laughs) what's going on with this it's still up in the air but we will definitely keep our eye on it because it will be probably the most monumentous moment of biden's legacy if he can get it done i'm gonna be 95 before this happens 90 freaking five yeah we're gonna be in walkers by the time this happens but bedazzled it does need to happen bedazzled bedazzled walkers but you guys i'm sure we'll be hearing about this next week when we provide more updates but 
there we are on the infrastructure updates of the week. It should be its own segment, really. I honestly agree. I think that it's been a long road for this bill, and we are crossing many bridges, but we haven't really gotten through the tunnel yet. You know, the light's just not really there. But in the meantime, we will move on to other things. And those other things include our lovely little January 6th panel. It's kind of like the infrastructure bill. It's, it bops in, it bops out. It has a news moment. It leaves the headlines, but we're back. We're back to this for a second. So the select committee, which is dedicated to investigating that little insurrection that happened, you know, no biggie. We'll kick off its first hearing this week. So with seven Democrats and two Republicans on the panel, all who have been appointed by good old speaker, Nancy Pelosi. So let's get through some key questions here, right? So like obviously insurrection, drama filled, the word itself, drama filled. I would like to circle back to that very bad hinge date that I was on in which I had a three hour debate over the word insurrection. So nonetheless, the question really is, will this be dramatic? So like how dramatic more specifically is the police testimony going to be? So I think people are waiting to see like, is this gonna make a difference? Like, especially for Republicans that have been closer to the support of Blue Lives Matter. Will this push anyone one way or the other? So responding to the testimony from four police officers will definitely present challenges for Republicans trying to walk the fancy line. You know, will there be a little bit of hypocrisy and whatnot? I mean, I think we will really have to see, but it's definitely a question mark. But what we will talk about a little bit more succinctly is who the two Republicans will be joining the Democrats on this particular panel. And that will be Liz Cheney from Wyoming, great state, really cool, never been there, hope to have a little moment. So if anyone has some free ticks, let me know. And Adam Kissinger from Illinois, who were appointed by Pelosi and voted to impeach Trump for this little attack situation. So their presence on the panel underscores the divide in the GOP, which is pretty clear over this entire situation, over the insurrection, with many Republicans aligned with Trump at all costs. And I repeat, at all costs. And those who are not above criticizing him, which is concerning on so many levels, but I digress. So what will these two Republicans do in terms of being in the line of fire from their own party? I mean, Cheney's already been there, done that. Like she's just like, be like, excuse me, that's so last year. But regardless, McCarthy has not sought to conceal his disdain for either of these two. He couldn't tell the last time he spoke with either, which like, what? Like you didn't, you haven't spoken with either of them. Like how I can't, <laughs> what type of dysfunctional family is Wait, this? But, but this quote, oh yeah. Who is that? Adam and Liz. Aren't they kind of like Pelosi Republicans? That's not a thing. That's like, what's a Pelosi Republican? I think they're just normal Republicans. Unlike you, sir McCarthy. So we've got like McCarthy's reaction, which is like obviously childish, shocking, not shocking. But there's also the question of, okay, how will Republicans outside of the room react? What's going to be the scene on the streets with them? So Republicans at large are trying to cast the select committee's work as partisan to cast a blanket of doubt on the proceedings, which is like ridiculous. Like you like literally were there too. It makes no sense. Yeah. So, your life was in danger as well. Sir. And they're like, oh, but they would have spared me. Oh, they wanted to hang pets. I don't know. 
and they killed some cops. So I'm really not feeling great about this, but not feeling great about your odds, mm-hmm. sir. No, the odds are definitely not in your favor, but now that we're leaving the hunger games, we're going back to Congress, which is kind of one and the same these days in the history of Congress. Never has a speaker done that is literally what McCarthy said Monday of Pelosi rejecting two of his panel picks. She's broken Congress. Like what she broke you? Like, did she break your heart, sir? Like, I want to know. Then it just makes the whole committee a sham and the outcome predetermined. So yeah, that's, that's where we're at. We're going to have some more updates for you guys next week on where this all lands, but this is currently where we are at, which is crazy that we're still talking about this at this particular stage of where it's at in july this happened in january yeah it should have been a really really simple moment to like come together and be like okay that was scary that was insurrection on our government a siege on our capital let's come together and hold these people accountable but we literally can't even do that we can't they're so up trump's asshole still and it's just beyond me we're gonna just move forward and hope that you know congress can do the same anyways that is it for this week um plugging of course our brand ambassador program if you guys have been you know maybe on the fence like pondering like oh that sounds cool like maybe i should do it maybe i don't know do it do it and go sign up at the link in our episode description We also um, will provide a link to a description of what the program is and like how it's laid out so you can have that picture and then go ahead and go sign up and we want to meet you. We want to bring you into the program, bring you into the community. So definitely head on over and let me say it one more time, sign up. And then guys, we have another exciting thing coming. We are going to be Patreon hoes. You are welcome. We are here for it. We have lots of great content coming for you guys and two different tiers for y'all to subscribe to. We are super excited to release this bad mamma jamma for you guys to check out. That will be coming to a link in a bio near you next week. So make sure to check that out. We're going to be putting out on patreon extended versions of i have a stupid question with sam and i explaining just really a whole glossary of political terms that we are expected to know but honestly probably just don't and that's okay we're answering them for you we are also providing civics courses and before you like run away in fear of the idea of civics course it's gonna be fun and the first one will be covering the levels and branches of government And we're just going to be laying that all out there for you. Definitely get ready for Patreon to drop next week. We're so excited. And again, peep our social media for more deets. But that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, follow us on social media. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.